And we know that people are more productive now because of all the automation and mechanization. GDP, that's gross domestic product per hour worked, has more than doubled per hour over the same period. So you've got twice as many workers and they're twice as productive on average. And their household income has gone up by 30%. And what does this mean to standard of living? Well, we've also lost a stay-at-home parent. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to The Rational View. I'm Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'd like to talk to you about income inequality. This is an issue that affects us all, I think, and I feel that society is pushing towards a tipping point on this issue, and I think a lot of you probably feel the same way. If anyone's been following the news recently, they know that Jeff Bezos, the uh, owner of Amazon, is approaching a trillionaire status while simultaneously cutting employee salaries. Now, I'd like to give you a disclaimer. Uh, I am a physicist, not an economist, so this is not uh, my life's work. Uh, but hopefully on a future episode, maybe we can get an expert in here to uh, debunk any of my claims. Uh, at the same time, um, I'm good at analyzing graphs, I'm good at analyzing numbers, and I'm good at reading and I think approaching this in a rational and unbiased fashion. So I'd like to talk to you about what I've learned uh, in researching this topic over the, the last while. Now, we know that income inequality has become extremely high in our society. Workers are getting the shaft and the rich are getting richer. I want to ask about what the contributing factors are and what are the potential solutions. And I'll tell you what I've come up with in my research. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to like, uh, send me your comments, and share it to your friends because this one is very important to our society. I feel that if income inequality continues the way it is, uh, we're heading for uh, an upset. Uh, and it's going to be a bad one. Um, looking back, you know, I felt like older generations had it pretty good. Um, you know, back in the post-World War II era, it was easy to get paid a living wage on a single salary. All the way up into probably the 1980s, um, strong unions existed. They were good-paying North American manufacturing jobs. It feels to me and to a lot of you out there, I think, that things have gotten much worse. The good manufacturing jobs have all moved offshore to China and to Asia. Now, why is that? Well, obviously, salaries are lower. Uh, so it's easier for companies to make cheap goods by paying people less on a wage that wouldn't be a living wage here. And this forces people in North America now to compete uh, against these lower wages. Uh, that are below the poverty line here in North America. Uh, looser environmental regulations. Uh, it's easier for companies to pollute. It's easier for companies to have sweatshops. All these things make it much more difficult for people to have a well-paying job in North America. It seems like we're all working harder. We need now two paychecks to support a family, whereas back uh, in the day, and my parents uh, worked off of one paycheck. You can't afford a house these days. Uh, house pricing seems to be really high. But you would think, 
What's changed since the 70s? We've become more productive. There's robots making things now. Uh, computers make us faster. The internet is there. We can research things at the tip of our fingers without having to go to the library and search for uh, references. We must be so much more productive than we were on a per hour basis. Why are we not reaping the benefits? What have we botched as society between 1970 and today? Well, it's not all bad. We are bringing up the standards of living in these poorer countries by outsourcing uh, labor and production. At the same time, eliminating well-paying jobs here. And this also brings down the cost of goods. It makes it easier to afford things. Over the same period, median household income has increased by about 30%. Inflation adjusted, of course. Uh, but what does this mean? Think about this. The, av the median household income has gone from about $50,000 in 1970 to about $63,000 today. And that's in inflation-adjusted terms. But the median household now has two wage earners, where in 1970 it had one. So yes, households are making about 30% more money, but they have 200% more workers. And we know that people are more productive now because of all the automation and mechanization. GDP, that's gross domestic product per hour worked, has more than doubled per hour over the same period. So you've got twice as many workers and they're twice as productive on average and their household income has gone up by 30%. And what does this mean to standard of living? Well, we've also lost a stay-at-home parent or a stay-at-home non-parent in the case where you don't have kids. And that's a huge value to home. People have estimated that the value of a stay-at-home parent to, to get all of the services that you get from that costs over $100,000 if you had to hire the people. But you need to work two jobs to pay the rent. And so you have to give this up if you want to keep a home. So that's the real thing there. Look at, think of the difference. If you have young children, you have to pay for childcare now. That's 20K. So, and that's because the, the real median uh, wages have gone down due to offshoring and all of these other things. And people aren't getting the benefits of their increased productivity. Think about that. Let that sink in. We have less free time, less family time. We're more rushed. Housing prices have skyrocketed over this period from about $190,000 average to $340,000 average. And this is after adjusting for inflation. How can this be? Inflation should be based somewhat strongly on housing prices, you would think. This is a huge expense that people have to pay for. And if we're going to compare our standard of living, then housing should not be increasing so much. If housing is going up, then everything else must have gone down significantly. And as I said, some things have gone down, and this is due to offshoring and other factors. So I don't know, maybe it's correct. Maybe this is fine. Um... And this led me to think, okay, well, how is inflation calculated? Is it being calculated correctly? And I found that amongst the economist community, there is a lot of controversy about how inflation should be calculated. 
Naively, I thought this would be an objective calculation that everyone would agree on. But no. The inflation is governed by something called the CPI. This is the Consumer Price Index. Uh, and this is the price or average price of a basket of goods that people have to buy or buy in general. And it's, it's a broad, broad scope of, of different things that people would have to buy. And they track the prices of these things. And as people adjust their purchasing habits, they replace goods with new ones. And this, doesn't, this replacement doesn't affect the inflation rate. So is it possible that inflation is not correcting for what we think it is? Is it possible that inflation is not telling us what a constant standard of living uh, would require? Thinking about it, inflation last year was 1.5%, yet the U.S. injected enough money into the system to create a monetary inflation of 4.9%. So those aren't connected as well as maybe they should be. Housing prices are not directly tracked by inflation. I found this out. The government actually uses uh, estimating the cost of you renting your house to you uh, and that's what they track, not the actual price of the houses. So house pricing does not have any reflection, except indirectly, in CPI. So then I thought, okay, well, this seems a little bit fishy. Why isn't there an objective arm's length group doing this? Well, yes, well, this is the U.S. government uh, does this. Are there any reasons why they would want to miscalculate inflation? What's the motivation of a government? What are the buttons that's pushing government in terms of how they would estimate inflation? Well, governments have to pay public sector pensions, and many of these are pegged to inflation. So if inflation goes up, what they have to pay goes up, and then they potentially could have deficits that make them look bad. Another thing that makes inflation, uh, makes governments want inflation to be low is GDP, the gross domestic product. Lowering inflation makes GDP look higher than it is. It makes your country look like it's producing more. And this inflates stock prices and makes people happy. So you can see there are a lot of vested interests for governments to make inflation look lower than it is and not to reflect the true cost of living. And in fact, we can look back and politically, the government of the U.S. made a lot of changes in how they calculate inflation back in the early 80s and 90s. In the 1990s, uh, the Fed chairman, Alan Greenspan, and the Republican leader, Newt Gingrich, got together to change the rules on how inflation is calculated. Since that period, bureaucrats have been allowed to replace goods when they become too expensive for people to buy, with cheaper alternatives. The example that was used was if people start buying more hamburger instead of steak due to changes in the cost of living, then we'll just make a substitution and hamburger will magically replace steak in the basket of goods and inflation won't go up. In fact, there have been more changes that are even more insidious, one might think. In the early 80s, changes were made that allow the government accountants to estimate the value of the improved quality of common goods, such that their increased price doesn't, inflect in, doesn't affect inflation. So, and this is called hedonic regression. 
uh, or uh, how, as long as you feel content with your purchases, uh, it's not uh, it's not an inflationary thing. So, for example, this means if the cost of your Microsoft Windows operating system goes up, but maybe it doesn't crash as often, this is no longer counted as inflation because you have a higher quality product. Perhaps you're aware of Moore's Law and the exponential increase in computing power that we've experienced since the 70s, uh, back before there were computers in every home. So this is exponential increases in processing power, exponential increases in the quality of computers. So whenever a faster processor comes out, the government can call that a, a quality increase, a value. The value is increased to the consumer, and we can subtract that increased quality from the value of inflation. So, for example, I spent about $1,000 on a 20 megabyte hard drive in the mid-80s. That was, that was something. That was the special 20 megabyte hard drive. Oof. Well, this year, I could spend that same $1,000 on a 20 terabyte hard drive. It's the same price, but a million times more memory. So the government, if they apply a linear hedonic quality regression adjustment, can claim that the current price of hard drives is 0.1 cents in 1985 dollars. That's maybe an exaggeration, but you get the picture. Many would argue that this is justified to a certain extent, and I agree in certain cases this is justified. For example, car tires are probably about four times more expensive than they were, but they last for twice as long, twice as many kilometers out of the same set of tires. So the true cost of this impact, this change in quality, needs to be reflected in the cost of living because I don't need to buy tires as often as I did. The government, however, in its wisdom and with the pressures facing it, has not applied very many negative quality adjustments to things that have made our lives worse that would tend to increase the CPI numbers and decrease GDP and increase the amount the government has to pay to their pensioners. For example, we get hedonic adjustments when our computers get more powerful, but we don't get offsetting adjustments for the hours that we lose because we have to wait while our personal information is tossed into a database by some poor clerk whenever we buy socks at a new store or have to remember a new password uh, for the jillion websites that we have to have access to or when the internet is down and we can't make any purchases at all we can't revert to the way in the 70s when they actually just wrote things down on paper and you could leave and let them do their own record keeping while you weren't standing there waiting there are no hedonic adjustments for being humiliated in in the intrusive airport security searches that we all have to endure and being crammed into tiny airplane seats and having our reservations bumped much more frequently so this is true, but it means that the cost, the consumer price index has become something of a political football and not at all the accurate measure of maintaining a constant lifestyle that we might expect. And some of this background I got from a website called shadowstats.com. It tracks inflation and it's trying to use the same standard of living from 1980 without the changes that were implemented uh, uh, by the government in that interim. Uh, so... The author on that website suggests that annual inflation, annual inflation is a whopping 7 percentage points off. And when I read that, my jaw hit the floor. It's like, oh my God, this is true. This must be true. The government is evil. They're doing this to us. But then I thought, wow, 
That is huge. It can't be that far off, can it? Now, I was ready to go to press with that, and I was ready to put that in the podcast, but then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, Al. Let's get a counter viewpoint. Let's look around. Someone must have rebutted this. And yes, of course, when I searched, then someone smarter than me had looked at this, and they'd found some mathematical errors. And the moral of this story is always look for rebuttals, even if you really like the message that you're hearing. Often it's too good to be true. So, yes, it was going to be a really good podcast, but it's still a very good podcast, and now it's much more correct. So, the 7% per year error, I think, has been debunked by serious economists due to double counting of some of the changes. However, serious economists that debunked it concede that the real changes could be up to 2.5% per year in inflation. So our current standard of inflation is understating it by two and a half, up to 2.5% per year. That's, that's really significant, and at least half a percent. Everyone agrees on that. So we can safely assume that this methodological underestimate of inflation continues to the present and has been going on for more than 20, more than 20 years, maybe 30, maybe 40. Accumulating over 20 years, a 2.5% error in the calculation of inflation means a 60% difference in the end total. Let that sink in for a bit. So we have a fixed median income uh, since 1970 after correcting for inflation using the government's numbers. And if we use the same inflation formula that were being used back in the 70s and 80s, this means that we have 60% lower standard of living. And that's frightening. If workers are demanding salary increases based on an erroneous inflation number to try and keep up a fixed standard of living, then they're being lied to. They're not asking for enough. Most workers don't realize the sleight of hand the government and the rich have pulled. They feel that their 2% annual raise is keeping pace with inflation. And in actual fact, they've been led to believe a fairy tale. And we all feel the difference, right? We know that things aren't as good as they used to be. When I started out working, you know, we'd always travel business class in airplanes uh, when we were being asked to travel long distances. Now, it's cheapest common carrier, um, shove yourself into cattle class. So, workers are being fooled into asking for a smaller fraction of the pie by these fake inflation numbers, and owners are making out like bandits. North American productivity, if you use the government's inflation numbers, Per hour work, GDP has more than doubled over the period from 1970 to 2020. But this is partly smoke and mirrors, I think. Sure, there have been significant increases in productivity thanks to robotics and computers, as I said before. Income, incomes have remained stagnant based on the government's inflation numbers for everybody except the top 1%, where it has increased dramatically. The stockholders, the owners of businesses, benefit from the mechanization and offshoring while the working class is disenfranchised. We've botched this whole transition from uh, uh, into the mechanized era. 
all of the technological advances since 1970 and all of the mechanization in that period has gone into padding the fortunes of the top 1% of society. Income inequality between rich and poor has not been at this level since the 1920s, before labor unions were a big thing. This needs to be fixed. In hindsight, what could we have done better? The current system rewards greed, and the results of this idolization of greed are now obvious, obvious to all of the people that are listening to this. We need, as a society, to make a strong effort to fix this before it gets violent. So, what are the solutions? What can we do? Well, if employees were required to own the majority of shares of their businesses, I think this goes a long way to putting the wealth back into the hands of the workers. We wouldn't have CEOs with obscene incomes if the employees were the ones that could make the rules. We wouldn't need labor unions. The whole process would be democratic. And we believe that as a society, a democratic system is the most equitable one. I believe we feel that way. Corporate governance would be more in line with civil governance rather than the feudalistic, tyrannical system that we currently have. And in fact, if employees were the majority owners of all the companies, there wouldn't be the same drive for consolidation that we see these days to promote the illusion of growth to these um, ravenous shareholders. People would be looking to develop sustainable businesses to maintain their employment and their standards of living. And they wouldn't be out trying to make mega corporations to provide this illusion of, of massive wealth growth. Employees would be more incentivized to succeed. The difference between rich and poor would shrink back to maybe levels that we were seeing back in the 70s. Of course, the big problem is how to implement these changes in an equitable fashion with the least amount of pain. Employee stock purchase plans exist and are very successful, and these can be used uh, to, to bring about this change. Uh, but how? How do we do that? Um, think about the vast injustice from 1970 to now. In 1970, the bottom 90% of society owned about 22% of all business wealth. 22%, the bottom 90%. In today, in today's market, the bottom 90% only owns 6% of all business wealth. The difference in the business wealth has been wholly taken up by the top 1%. They, they have basically disenfranchised the employees. They've taken all the advances. When robotics and mechanization have been implemented, none of the benefits have come to the workers. Any major fix will not be perfect. What if we mandate these uh, employee stock plans with the right to buy 50% of the shares in a company? And say we, give a, we use a loan out of the future earnings of the company to pay that back so that people uh, aren't suddenly disenfranchised and their savings aren't gone down the drain. This would allow employees to share in the benefits of future advancements and improvements 
and I think would lead to a more stable, sustainable, and equitable society. Anyways, thank you for listening to this podcast, and if you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it with your friends, and I would love if you could leave me a review online. Uh, Next week, I'm going to be talking about vaccine hesitancy. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.